Hi, I'm Ben Weaver-Hinks. I'm Zachary Fall. And I'm Nadia Cavell. And you're listening to Migratives, the podcast championing migrant creatives in the UK. Today we speak with Raphael Aclock, a French actor of Algerian and Corsican descent based in London. Raphael started acting in France before studying in the UK and has since been seen in television series including Little Birds, Tyrant and 24 Legacy and on stage in the Young Vic production of The Jungle. He will soon be appearing in film projects including Judd Apatow's The Bubble and The 355 starring Jessica Chastain. Raphael spoke with us about the influence of his dual heritage, the invaluable support he's been grateful for at key moments in his career, and why he'll always be a Parisian. Hi, Raphael. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to speak to you. So I'm going to jump right in, really. You were born and raised in Paris and are of Corsican and Algerian descent. Mm-hmm. French is your native language, and you also speak English, Spanish, Italian, and Arabic, if I'm correct. Yes. Yeah, amazing. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and how that dual heritage informed you as a child? So I was born and raised in Paris. I spent a lot of time when I was young in Algeria as well, because my mum was sort of like trying to do a bit of business in between Algeria and France. So she used to take me and leave me with my grandmother, which I'm very grateful for because it allowed me to sort of really get to know her, at least in the first five years of my life. I mean, that dual heritage, it's a bit of a funny thing because growing up, it didn't seem that like there were many kids that had like some sort of like a dual heritage. Mm -hmm. I've grown up in a neighborhood with loads of North and Sub-Saharan African families. And Mm -hmm. I was one of the only ones who was half-half. Right. It's become such a, you know, common thing now because our generation has mixed up way more. Right than our parents you know especially especially when one of your parents is from a catholic family and the other one is from a muslim family that's not something that you saw so much at the time Mm. it did exist but i wouldn't witness it so as a child i was like okay so maybe i'm a bit of an oddity and i don't look like my dad at all and my younger brother doesn't look like my mom at all i mean to be fair it was great i was spending loads of time in corsica loads of time in algeria I had all this amazing food in my house, amazing culture. (laughs) I I don't think I was very much aware of what it would bring me as an individual before I was actually in my late teenage years. What do you feel in terms of your identity is Corsican versus Algerian? And was there ever any tension there in terms of those two heritages? There definitely was, because again, they have different religions. Right. Both Corsican and Algerian people are very, very proud of their origins. Mm. So you have to grow up in a family where when you go to Corsica, you have to be Corsican. And when you go to Algeria, you have to be fully Algerian. It goes through using different names because I've got three names. Oh, wow. Yeah, Christian and Muslim names. So I had a different name according to the place, you know, I was going to. Mm. So what are those names, if I may ask? I have a Muslim name, which is Fahd. Mm-hmm. And my two other names are Raphael and Charles. Charles. Right. You basically have to please the entire family. Yeah. And it's a bit strange because you have to prove, you know, to the Corsican side that you you belong and you have to prove to the Algerian side that you belong. 
And as a child, it's okay. But as a teenager, when, you know, everybody's sort of like trying to figure out who they are when they're a teenager. Yeah. And having grown up in a neighborhood with loads of North African people, I had this time in my life where I was probably convinced that I was more Algerian than I was Corsican, also because I do look like an Arab. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it took me a bit of time to balance it out and just think, you know what, they're both great. My families are both great. I love them. And I managed to identify as much as a Corsican as as I do as an Algerian and also as a French person, also as a Parisian. Yeah. You know, it's a bit of a funny one. If there was a Parisian passport, I'd definitely own one. Right. You know, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The mm. same with London, I think, for mm. me. Yeah. And, you know, it is what it is. So it does create tension when, when you're trying to figure out who you are. Yeah. yeah. And once you are at peace with you know all the components of your heritage then it becomes something great and beautiful and yeah you embrace it exactly you embrace every every piece of it Mm -mm. and you were saying that there weren't many kids when you were growing up that were mixed was your parents marriage their union quite atypical for the time or for where you were from the muslim and the christian coming together in a marriage I mean, it definitely was, especially in Algeria, because my parents moved to Algeria for a while before I was born. My dad followed my mom, and I think they stayed uh, more or less a year in Algeria. And, you know, like, I think it was a bit weird for people to just see that white dude coming <laughs> and, you know, being called Jean-Pierre and hanging out with a bunch of Arabs. And it was just like, of course, it was a bit strange for them. And even for families, it takes a bit of time to adjust yeah you know they were fairly accepted in each other's families mm-hmm. it's probably been a couple of people on each side that might have started with a bit of a, a prejudice but overall mm-hmm. they managed to sort of like get everybody to accept it and my grandmother my mum's mum she really accepted my dad straight away right and same with my grandfather on my dad's side you know he adored my mum as soon as she entered the family so I think that as long as you have like an important member of the family, you know, somebody sort of like who is in charge, who's accepting it. Yeah. And the others just have to follow. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I'm not saying that because they're my parents, but they're two beautiful people. They're very kind and very generous people. So I think they both made the efforts to make it work as well. Wonderful. And so what is your earliest memory of theater or what was your first exposure to it? And what place do the arts hold in your family? I mean, my parents are an artist. It was a dream of my mum to be an actress, but... Oh, really? Yeah, but at the time in Algeria, if you went to tell your dad that you wanted to be an actress, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's just, it's as if you were going to say that you wanted to be a prostitute, basically, you know? It's, right, um, yeah. You know, my mum was born in the 50s, and it's that kind of thing where people just didn't get it. So yeah. it's something that she didn't manage to embrace. And when I decided to, you know, she's really pushed me for it. And to be fair, when I was 11, I did a movie for television mm-hmm. and a casting director saw my brothers and I, and because the three of us, we just don't look alike. She was like, oh, are they brothers? And uh, oh, they look nice. And the three of them look beautiful, but they don't look like each other. And I made a joke saying, yeah, but I think I'm the most beautiful one. And she laughed and, <laughs> and told my mom, oh, does he want to do auditions? Like, is he interested in auditioning for stuff? And my mom said, yeah, yeah, I think. I mean, she didn't even ask me. She said, yeah, he is. And uh, <laughs> To be fair, I loved it when I did it for, I didn't do it for too long because I did audition for probably a couple of months, got a role in a film Uh when I was 11, did that film, hated it, 
Really? Yeah, oh. I hated it big time. Because mm. I think I thought that I just was going to have fun. I didn't know it was going to be a job. Yeah. Right, yeah. I didn't know I was going to have like a proper schedule and, you know, be told to do shit. And so I was like, oh, I didn't sign for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, at the time I was... Because I was a swimmer, my dad put me into swimming very early on. Mm. And I even went to a school that sort of like accommodated the schedule for people to have more time in the swimming pool. And I was that kind of kid. So I did that, hated it, and just told my parents, you know what, I'm better in a swimming pool. (laughs) I don't want to do that ever again. And then when I went to university and obviously didn't enjoy university much, I just decided to get back to it with a more serious mindset, if I can say. Yeah. And speaking of university, so you studied law to start with, right? Yeah. Why law and how was that journey for you? I told my dad I want to do anthropology and he said, you're going to write a book that not even me is going to read. You're not not going to do shit with anthropology. It's not going to lead you anywhere. You should think about it. And then I was like, who makes money? I'm being serious. I I was literally just thinking, who makes money? Lawyers Mm -hmm. make tons of money. I'm going to go and study law. To be fair, it's a similar experience to me being an actor when I was 11. I just didn't sign up for that. I arrived and I was, okay, it's going to be much more complicated before I actually start seeing some cash, you know? Mm -hmm. So I did my first two years. And after that, I just decided to quit. Just wasn't your thing. Yeah, I just went and pushed the doors of a drama school in Paris. And that's how it started. So what was it that drew you back exactly? So it happens very simply. I want to quit law. It's the end of my second year. It's not for me. I go to a karaoke place with some of my mates who were singers and I just follow them. And I see this girl whom I had met when I was in secondary school. And she is now a movie star in France. Right. So I meet her at this place and I said, hey, you might not remember me, but we actually met in school when we were much younger. And she was like, yeah, I actually do remember your face. So we have a bit of a talk. And I said, you know what? Sometimes I'm just wondering if I'd like it, if I actually gave it a try again, you know, acting. And she was like, why don't you just go? Go tomorrow and push a door. She doesn't actually, you know, I haven't seen her ever again since that encounter. But she just gave me that advice. Go push the door and see if you like it. Mm. And probably three days later, I was doing it. Wow. Oh, wow. So do you think if you hadn't had that chance encounter, you might have had a completely different life? <laughs> I, I, I honestly have no idea. Maybe I would have made the decision myself. But I think it was just a very chill, nice, inspiring chat that we've had. Mm. And so you pushed the doors of a French drama school to start with, is that right? Yeah, it was the Cours Florent, which is mm-hmm. which is more like a studio, you know, like the American studios than the drama school because you right. just you have a teacher, you have nine hours a week, and you go and just show him scenes, you know. Okay. Yeah, but there's some really good people there. There's some bad teachers and there's some good teachers, and if you're lucky enough to have the good ones, you can learn some really good stuff, you know. For sure. So how long did you do that for? And did you get work then or before you moved to London in 2012? No, I wasn't getting any work, nothing. I didn't have many additions. Yeah. It was just, you know, sometimes it just doesn't click. Yeah. I probably wasn't as ready as I was when I left Lambda. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's on me. But also I think it has to do with the fact that in Paris, now there's tons of guys of Arab descent who are doing amazing. 
but at the time it was you know it was certainly starting very slowly i'm speaking 2008 2009 right yeah so it just wasn't working and i did a bit of theater but i always wanted to do screen work and it just i wasn't getting any traction and that's why i decided to audition for lambda and see if i was going to be luckier in the uk and how was your English then? Because it's a big leap of faith and a very admirable one as well. Did you feel confident with your English? 2009, I couldn't speak English. Wow. So what I did was go to London. I had a plan in my mind. I'm going to stay six months. I'm not going to think about auditioning and I'm not going to think about acting. I'm just going to think about learning the language. Mm. So I arrived in June 2009 and I found a job in a strip club as a waiter in London in a club called the Mayfair Club. And that's literally the only job I got because I dropped CVs everywhere, Zara, H&M, but my English was so poor. It was such a catastrophe that I struggled to find a proper job. And wow. I knew, obviously, I knew a few French people in London who knew a girl who was working there who was French. And they asked her if she could just introduce me to the team over there and see if I could get a job. And first they gave me a job. I mean, that's the worst for someone who doesn't speak the language. But they say, you know what? You're going to go in the streets and try and bring customers. <laughs> and, and for every customer that you bring, you get 20 pounds. But if you don't bring anybody, you don't get paid. And I was like, you know what? 20 pounds is still good. I'm going to give it a go. Mm. And then I do it the first night. No luck. I can't get anybody in the club. I do it the second night. And I'm seeing this man like in this amazing suit who seems really loaded. And I'm like, okay, if I bring this dude, he's going to spend loads of money. I'm, it's going to be great. And I, I'm starting to talk to him. And I'm miming the curves of a woman that I'm imagining. <laughs> that I'm, I'm, no, but that's horrible. But imagine somebody who doesn't speak any word of English yeah. and, has, and has to convince a man that he should follow me to a strip club and that he's going to have a good experience. That's like you an know. acting exercise right there. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. It was, <laughs> so I start like saying, yeah, you like uh, beautiful girls, uh, beautiful body. Blah, and I'm trying to sort of like <laughs> use the few words I have. And that yeah. guy decides to answer me very, very slowly. And he says, how old are you? So I'm telling him I'm 24. I could say that. I knew how to say that. Mm. And he said, listen to me, get another job <laughs> <laughs> and i'm like oh my god this is so sad because you know when you're learning the language you lose your entire personality yeah yeah you know you can't make jokes you can't be yourself so when he told me that i saw in his eyes pity nothing else yeah so the day after i went back to the guy who was sort of like trying to get me to do this job and i go to the club probably around 6 7 p.m and i say i've taken notes because my flatmates were French. So they explained to me how to say it in English. I've taken notes and I told the guy with the notes I had, I can't keep doing it because I'm simply, you know, it's not going to work. I need to make a living. I need to pay a rent and I need a proper job. And mm -hmm. he said, okay, I get that. Let me ask the floor manager if he can get you something. And the floor manager goes in. It just happens that the floor manager is Syrian. So when I was in London at the time, I was using my Arabic name. So mm -hmm. the guy introduces me as Fahd. And the guy looks at me and he says, Fahd. He pronounces my name in Arabic. Mm. And I also in Arabic. And we have a, Syrians and Algerians don't really speak the same dialect. But for very, very primitive conversation, we can understand each other, you know. Yeah. So yeah. the guy asks me if I'm an Arab. I say, yeah, I'm an Algerian. All of it in Arabic. And I'm telling him that I need to work. And he says, 
okay, you know what? Come tomorrow, come at 8 p.m. and I'll get you to do something. And he got me a job as a barback. And after a couple of months, my English was good enough to work as a waiter because I've met a girl there who was English. And, you know, obviously when you meet somebody, it makes a, a huge difference. Yeah. Because you have to talk to her and express stuff. But obviously your English is going to get much, much better, much quicker. Yeah. And were you just learning by listening, by being immersed, or were you also sort of with the textbooks? So I was working nighttime, daytime, I was watching films and I had like an assimil method, you know, it's like a learning method. Mm. And I was doing all of my grammar, all of the stuff that I needed to do to sort of like have at least a bit of it to be able to understand my employers, you know. Yeah. So I was doing this daytime, working with my English method and watching films, writing down the lines that sounded really good. So I was watching the films in English with subtitles in English. And I was like, oh, this sounds good. I can use that. And <laughs> that's how it started. Amazing. That was my relationship to English. And yeah, it was a leap of faith to audition for Lambda. But my English in 2012, when I got in, mm. was not spectacular. But it was decent enough that they consider that I'd managed to sort of like improve it once I'd be in. Yeah. yeah. And obviously it was decent enough to be able to do my audition scenes in English. So when you came in 2008, it was really with the ambition of auditioning for a UK drama school, was it? Or was it just, let's see what happens? My French agent, because I wasn't getting any traction in France, was telling me, you know, there's a future for French Arab actors I can sense that it's going to be more and more roles. Right. So you should learn English because you are missing opportunities. Ah, okay. And that's why I just said, you know what, I'm just going to go because otherwise I'm, I'm never going to learn the language. So I'm just going to, you know, just move to the city. Yeah. Yeah, I got you. So you didn't know you were actually going to end up auditioning for drama school? No, I just wanted to be able to speak it a bit to audition. And when I was there, because people were telling me, what are you doing? I said, well, I, I want to be an actor. They were like, oh, you're going to go to Lambda? And I was like, what is Lambda? Like, <laughs> you know, that's a drama school. I was like, oh, really? And that's how it started. It just wow. uh, it piqued my interest. Yeah. And so how was your time there? Can you take us through the highs, the lows? And were there other international students studying with you? So in my year, I was the only non-native speaker. Yeah. Uh, and I think at the time when I was there, so in my year, there were three American students. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah. Otherwise, all of the others were British. And in the school, I think that there was, apart from the Americans, I think, top of my head, there was a half Russian, half Israeli actor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There was me. Oh, there was also a Serbian student. But I think that was pretty much it in terms of non-native English speakers. Right. My time there was great. It was a small year. It was only 19 of us, mm -hmm. which means that we've made the most of the training. I've learned a lot. It was difficult at the beginning. Because it felt a bit sometimes that people could be patronizing because of the fact that, I mean, I still have an accent, but at the time it was getting in the way sometimes of just comprehension, just be intelligible mm. when I was talking to people or when I was doing a scene. And it felt at times a bit humiliating is a strong word because that's not people trying to humiliate me. That's me feeling like this. So you know, there's the difference because I'm just saying things how I saw them from my own prism in a way. Mm. So to constantly be reminded that I was a French student. Right. But at the same time, I was. <laughs> you see what I mean? Yeah. You know, I came for a reason. They knew I came for a reason. They knew I wanted to work in the UK and American industries. So they had to let me know what progress I had to make 
in order for me to be able to at least hope to have a bit of a career there. So I took it the wrong way at the beginning because of my pride. You did. Yeah, 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 definitely. Right. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't know any actor who's not proud, you know, who doesn't have a bit of an ego. <laughs> you, know, you have to have... You have to, yeah. You have to be a good person, not an asshole, but you have to have a little bit of an ego to do this job. Definitely. And you arrive in a drama school where the level, the quality is pretty high. Mm. The actors were solid in my year. Mm. And I don't think I was any less solid, but... I had to deal with material that was in a different language. So the teachers had to push me yeah, because they knew from the beginning what my ambitions were. And I thank them for that today. But yeah, it was a bit tricky. And then, so that was for the creative part. Then I, I had a bit of a, because obviously I didn't have enough money to pay. I got a scholarship. I got loads of help, but it just wasn't enough. Right. Because living there and paying for the fees and all this stuff, just, I wasn't able to cover all of it. So at some point, I couldn't pay all of my fees, even with the scholarship and the help. Mm-hmm. So at the end of my first year, they decided to let me go. Right. Oh, wow. And the entire school students and teachers really fought to keep me there. And yeah, I managed to finish my training. And they're all amazing. Like I was seeing the teachers in the corridors and they were like, you're not going. Just so you know, you're not going. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. And the students, they were, I found loads of support and love at the time that I wouldn't have imagined. Mm. I just wouldn't have imagined. And something happened. I don't think she would want to talk about it in a podcast or anywhere else, but basically I had a deadline to pay. And I think that five days before I was going to reach the deadline, I was still short to finish paying what I owed the school. And one of the teachers, I'm not going to give a name because she doesn't want me to, but she came to me and said, do you have all of the cash? And I said, no, I'm still short. And she was like, okay, I'm giving it to you. Wow. And I'm like, come on, I can't just accept. And she was like, yeah, but you can't go. I don't want you to go. So we have a problem there. So you have Mm -hmm. to accept my money. And I was like, okay, I'm going to accept it only if we sign a contract that says that this is a loan and I have to repay you. Mm -hmm. And she was like, but you don't have to. And I was like, yeah, but I'm going to leave drama school. I'm going to get acting jobs and I'm going to pay you back. Mm -hmm. And I managed to pay and I managed to stay. Every once in a while, I I tell this story and she doesn't want me to say it, but I think it has to be said because it's such an amazing thing to do. It's fantastic. It's such a heartwarming. She's like my aunt now. Yep, (laughs) we're very much in touch and I only have love, esteem and respect for this person. And she lent me the money. I was able to repay her probably within one year after I left. Mm -hmm. I made it my goal. You know, it was whenever I was getting a bit of money, I was like, okay, I paid the rent. And what I have left, I absolutely have to start putting it back. Yeah. Yeah. I honestly think that she has changed my life because you could never know what would have happened if I didn't have that solution. So whenever I get an acting job, I tell her that I owe it to her still. Mm. Yeah. That's so wonderful. What a journey into this industry for you. Really inspiring. So what was your experience of the industry once you graduated? Was it what you expected or was it very different? I think... Because I'd struggled in France before I went to Lambda, I was expecting it to be a little bit tricky mm-hmm. just because I was aware of the reality of the job. And the funny thing is when you get to Lambda, they tell you two things. They say, we picked you because we thought you were the best. And then they said, but just bear in mind that it's an industry where there's no money. You're probably going to be poor. Like the head of drum school told us that on the first day, he was like, you're not going to make money with it. 
So just know why you decided to be an actor. I remember thinking, yeah, that's bullshit because I love the craft, but I still need the money because, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, you need to make a living. It is a profession of faith, but it is also a profession. Yeah. Yeah. So when I left for a few months, I had to work as a waiter nighttime in Mahiki, the club that is literally opposite the strip club where I worked <laughs> when I arrived in London. Wow. So I worked a bit as a waiter. I managed to get a tiny, 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 tiny role in a film called Burnt the week before I graduated. So it was really nice to leave school with an agent and with a job. Mm. You know, I had the one line in the film, but to me, it was amazing. It didn't matter. Yeah. Because I was going to be in a big movie, have a couple of scenes with Bradley Cooper. It was great exposure. I was really grateful and really happy. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So I left, I had an agent, you know, for a few months I auditioned, but I just, there was at the time still in 2014, there were loads of terrorist parts. Yeah. I don't see many of them now. I don't know if it's just because my agent is making the decision to not send them to me or it's just because... People are writing less of it now because they know that people are less interested in seeing this kind of material. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't really happy with the things I was auditioning for. And a few months later, I decided to change. And there's an actor called Patterson Joseph who went to Lambda, who is an incredible actor with an incredible body of work. And when he heard about the story about me not being able to pay for the school, he sent me an email, I think the year after, saying, hey, I've heard about you. Listen, I know you're leaving drama school now. If you need a bit of mentoring, just give me a shout. And after a few months not being happy with my agent, I was like, hey, Patterson, is there any chance, any chance you could talk to Hamilton Adele about me and see if a meeting can be arranged? Which he did with a man who's called Alexander Cook. And Alex and I, we got on super well, but I didn't have any material. I just shot Burnt and I was auditioning. And he said, listen, I'm really interested, but I need to see more. And he mm. kept telling me for months, I need to see more, I need to see more. Okay. And in April of 2015, so almost a year after leaving drama school, I just left my agent and Amy Hubbard, who is Dan Hubbard's sister, she's always been supportive ever since I left drama school. And I just sent her an email saying, hi, Amy, I just finished shooting The Danish Girl. I have a small part in it, but this is what I'm doing at the moment. I left my agent. Could you recommend me to people? I was talking to Alexander Cook at Hamilton Adele, but he needs to see more material, which I don't have at the moment. And she called him and said, what are you waiting for? Just sign that kid. Mm -hmm. You know, Alex sent me an email saying, hey, you know what? Let's try something. I'm going to put you up for a few auditions, send you a few tapes and see, see how we get on. And I was like, yeah, I'm more than happy to do that. I said, I'm not signing you. I'm just going to send a few tapes and we see if we work well together. It took a few months for him and for me to sort of, you know, manage to figure out what this was going to be. And I'm so happy and grateful that he made that decision because he's done wonders for me ever since. Mm. And we're still working together and he's the best. He's the best. Yeah, it's just great that he took that chance on you. Because, I mean, myself included, a lot of international actors get close with agents, but then often hear things like, you know, you're very talented, but there's just not enough work for someone like you out here. Yeah, definitely. But I owe loads to Patterson Joseph as well. Right. Hmm. The introduction. Exactly. Maybe these guys you're talking about didn't necessarily have the person, you know, at the right moment who was there to vouch for them. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll be eternally grateful to him too, because he didn't have to do that. You know, recommending somebody is nothing and at the same time is everything. Yeah. It's beautiful to hear how 
at key moments in your journey, someone was there to give you the boost or the support you needed? Yeah, I don't believe you can do anything by yourself. I mean, you can do things by yourself, but it's very difficult to sustain achievements without a little bit of help. If yeah. you're just alone, it is so complicated. Mm. Raphael, you mentioned this question of like, where can you be placed? Like, where are the roles for you? And when you started to get these roles, which auditions were the ones that started to work out? And did you get a sense of like, ah, this is my place in the industry? Ha, huh. that's a very good question because I keep complaining about the fact that very often I get cast in something that is not necessarily my zone of comfort. So mm. I've been quite fortunate to be able to play very different stuff. And I just found that also my agent managed to educate the casting directors to my complex heritage in a way that they stopped seeing me either as an Arab or as a French actor, but just as somebody who was quite international and, you know, able to speak various languages and who was able to sort of like do different stuff, you know? Mm. Yeah. And, you know, the part I had in Humans, even if it's in one episode, it's a funny thing because... I got such great response from that, even though it was three scenes in an episode out of the entire show. It was in Spanish. I was playing a robot. Like, <laughs> when I left drama school, I wouldn't have imagined that I would play a robot in Spanish <laughs> in an English show, you know? Right, sure. yeah. <laughs> and then when I do Little Birds and I play this gay Arab in the 50s in, in a French protectorate during the colonial era, the two very different parts, I wouldn't know hard to explain why directors just thought that I was right for this part in both cases. You know, I'd love it if I could tell you that I found the recipe to sort of know when I'm going to be able to land the part, what kind of part I'm going to be able to land. And the funny thing is sometimes I'm like, oh, this is so for me. I'm so right for it. I'm so getting this shit. And I don't even get a recall. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. but, and I'm like, but why? This is me. This is me. Yeah. Sometimes I get something and I'm like, I'm never gonna get this. And I just do the tape and Alex calls me and says, Hey, they fucking loved it. They want to meet with you. And I'm like, Really? That's <laughs> so true. So <laughs> yeah. It's more a question of writing than a question of the parts. You know, sometimes you connect with the writing. You read the scripts and you say the lines and they just, you know, they flow. Yeah, mm -hmm. And it has nothing to do with the kind of part, whether he's a thug or whether he's, you know, a robot, whether it's a period piece or a modern piece. It has to do with the writing. Am I connecting with the kind of writing on this project? And sometimes the part is literally something that I could nail, but I just, you know, I can work hours on the lines. They just resist me for a reason. Mm. Yeah. Maybe sometimes because the writing is going to be too American. Because mm. I'm fortunate enough that most of the time, unless the part has to be very specific, most of the time casting directors are like two year in accent. They know that, you know, with a bit of work, I obviously managed to neutralize it a lot. So they're like, just neutralize your accent, go with it. Um, mm. We're fine with it, at mm. least for the first round. But sometimes, even if you do that, and even if the casting director allows you to do it, the writing is so American. The rhythm mm. is so American mm. that if you can't do an American accent, it's going to resist you in a way. Yeah, mm -hmm. I know what you're yeah. saying. And, and it has nothing to do with the kind of part. I think it has to do more with, oh, okay, all of a sudden I connect with this. I connect with the script and, and lines are easy in my mouth and mm -hmm. I know what to do with it, you know? Mm, yeah. yeah. I think that's a really interesting answer and actually expressed in a way I hadn't really thought of. But something I notice a lot 
is in particularly a lot of these very international productions i say international sort of transatlantic productions now that a lot of the streamers are doing where you have maybe an american predominantly american writing team but a lot of british actors and there are often cases where it just doesn't sit right because it's idiomatically american exactly and Mm. You know, there's so much strength that can come from these international productions, but there are also like new problems that get thrown up. I think we got to get some more international writers. Exactly. Yeah. 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 That's what we need. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I'll come across more and more scripts like this where, like, mm. you know, they're not trying to be like particularly American in the writing. And it might be a generational thing. I don't know. Cause obviously today, people who are in their 20s and their 30s, they're so used to hang out with people from different countries and speaking different languages and having all sorts of accents especially when you're in the art industry so i guess that the writers who are from this generation they got so used to have people from all over the world mm. yeah and this huge mix of accents and sounds and yeah and dealing with different dialects at the same time and, exactly yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah but i think this is kind of what needs to still be represented more and hopefully will be is these globalized individuals with accents that you just can't box because mm-hmm. it's a reality that's more and more present. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. You sort of touched on this a little bit, but in reference to your role in 24 Legacy, I was really interested to hear that you talked about how important it was to you that projects like this don't propagate Islamophobia, particularly projects dealing with terrorism. Could you talk a little bit about this? And do you feel a particular responsibility when it comes to representation? I always struggle with the word responsibility because it's a bit of a strong word. You know, nobody has chosen me to speak on their behalf or choose a project on their behalf. I'm going to try and answer the question by just explaining how I approach all of this representation thing and all of these roles and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. First thing, I don't ever think that a writer writes something thinking, oh, I'm going to write this racist piece. It's going to be amazing. (laughs) You know, I've seen people do things really badly with the best intentions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Honestly, and I'm not saying everybody's well intended, but all I'm saying is it's just not financially profitable, you know. So these people are not going to want to make something with the purpose to offend. Having said that, when I got off at 24 Legacy, it happened in a very simple way. I did an audition for it. I did a, a show called Tyrant. And the guy behind that show is called Howard Gordon. He's the guy behind X-Files. He's the guy who created Homeland. Mm. He's one of the brains behind the other 24 series because this was a reboot. It was supposed to sort of like be very different from the traditional show. And mm-hmm. uh, Great guy. I only have respect for him. Right. When he gave me the part on 24, he wasn't going to be the showrunner. He was going to be on a sabbatical. And he was like, listen, we loved your work on Tyrant. And, you know, I talked to you about the team. They liked the idea. And when I met with them over Skype, I was shooting in Prague at the time. And they said, listen, we'd like to offer you this part. You know, I said, but I'm not too keen on playing terrorists. And they said, yeah, but this guy is a kid whose father was, you know, terrorist, but he's always been against his father. And then his dad gets killed and he gets on a personal revenge. So... When I took the parts, I was like, okay, so I just want to avoid a few things. I don't want this, I don't want that. I don't see the point of saying Allah if I'm speaking in English, because then it doesn't have the same connotation. Even if we say Allah, we talk about God. But, you know, the use of it sometimes on screen is a bit strange. So I was like, 
I don't want to see people around me screaming Allah Akbar and like just like doing some crazy shit. I know the guy's going to be the villain. I'm not going to ask you to make it nice. But I just want to make sure that it doesn't look like all of a sudden all Muslims are crazy. That's my thing. Yeah. I have no issue with somebody on screen being a terrorist because they are terrorists in life. It exists. My issue is if the project all of a sudden is telling the story in such a way that somebody might watch it and think, oh, so all Muslims are like this. So I wouldn't say I have the responsibility of the representation of Muslim people lies on my shoulders. But what I would say is there is a sensible decision to make whenever you take on a role, at least because the thing with TV series is unless it's a limited series, you have four episodes, they've all been written. You know what the story is from A to Z. And there's no problem. You know exactly what's going to be shot. When you jump on a show that has 10, 12 episodes, mm. if you get the first episode, you're lucky. Mm-hmm. So you sign on the promise of what the show's going to be, what the character's going to be, what the development of the character's going to be. And then you can only pray that it's going to work smoothly, you know? Yeah, yeah. So when you make a decision on a show, you don't really know what's going to happen you know, halfway through the process of making it. But at least what you can do is say, okay, I have a sensible choice. What is the material I'm being given now to make my decision? And what are the information? When I decide to jump on a project, I'm just asking simple questions. Are my family going to watch it and say, is he mad? Like, did he realize that this was crazy and that, you know, representation was going to be terrible? So I start thinking about my family and about my parents. I usually talk to them about it. You know, they might disagree with me taking on a role. And I might still take it, but at least I listen to them. Yeah. So if they're not overly worried and I do like the part for a reason or another, then I'll take it. Mm. But at least when you jump on a show, what you have to ask yourself is, am I going to make my people look like fools? Right. And if the answer is yes, again, from my point of view, because even within a family, sometimes something is going to be offensive for some members Mm. of the family and something isn't going to be for others. Right. I don't know, according to the level of religious beliefs that you have or many things. I'm thinking now of your part on Little Birds, for example. Was that one a tricky one for some members of your family? Well, it was a tricky one for me to start with. I'd be lying if I said, you know, Mm. when you're being offered the part of an Arab who is gay, who lived in the 50s in a country that was on the French protectorate. So it was basically colonization. Okay. Mm, mm, mm. There's so many, you know, sensible subjects that are being tackled that you're like, there's no way as an actor at the level I'm at at the moment, there is absolutely no way I'll be able to control all of the narrative and all of what's going to happen in this show. Yeah. And there's so many sensible topics that I have to give it a bit of a thinking before taking it. Yeah. Mm. And when I signed on Little Birds, I had the first three episodes of the show. That changed a lot after because stuff happens, you know. The script changed a lot after that. But when I got episode one, two and three, I was very nervous. But the scripts were beautiful and it was really well written. And I was like, I am nervous. I am going to be nervous while I'm going to do it. But I still had the desire to do it for myself as an experience. And because I believed in the project and that kind of stuff. And I wish I could tell you, oh, no, I was fine and I was relaxed. And uh, <laughs> I'd rather be honest, and it is a project that was complicated, but I'm not telling them they made it complicated for me. I'm not saying that. I'm saying I made it complicated for myself because right. I really realized whenever I was shooting a scene going home, I was constantly second guessing everything. 
Right. Is this line going to be misinterpreted? Is this scene going to be problematic? Is this thing going to be tricky? I think it's becoming more and more difficult now to avoid those questions. For sure. There are so many conversations across so many different minority groups. You constantly worry as someone working in the arts, if you're going to do this or that cause justice, or I can completely understand that worry, that concern. We watched Little Birds. We really liked it. And I thought it was a really interesting part and one that we haven't seen. How did you prepare for that role, given that it is, yeah, sort of uncharted territory in a way? I prepared for it in terms of I worked on the scripts and I worked on the scenes and stuff. But it's a funny thing because I've had, when we had all the interviews, when the show was released, the people asked me this question, how did you prepare playing a gay guy in the 50s? And I was like, well, you don't find anything about a gay Arab in the 50s, sorry. And I said, you don't find anything about a gay Arab in the 50s in books mm. because there was no way people were going to talk about it. Obviously, it's still a topic that is taboo, you know, in Arab countries. Mm. So there was not much material. I think I just, because the fact that he was gay wasn't a problem for him. It's not an issue for the character. He doesn't struggle with it. The struggle he has is to accept that he is a brown guy amongst white people and he's been pretending that he was like them for so many years just because he was privileged in terms of money. Right. And, you know, as I always said, it's like he was a horse that painted himself and made himself believe he was a zebra. And, you know, one day he just realizes that he's not and that's where the conflict comes from, not from the fact that he was gay. Right. So... The thing I had to work more on was self-loathing in terms of what his skin color meant, which was interesting for me because I embrace my Arabness so much. You know, I've got dual citizenship. I'm half Algerian and, you know, I'm so proud of it. So that's where the work was interesting for me to sort of all of a sudden work on somebody who was ashamed, Mm. who was ashamed to be what he was just because he wanted to belong. Mm. Yeah. Switching gears slightly on stage you were in the young Vic production of the jungle yeah could you tell us a bit about that experience and what it meant to you personally working on the production Stephen Daldry best director I've ever worked with he's an amazing artist and he's got a beautiful soul so we started devising the play I think in September then we started rehearsing in October November then we opened the show in December till mid-January I only did the first run. I decided to leave the play after just because I got offered the job on French television and it was a great opportunity and I wanted to do screen. But otherwise, it was my first experience in theatre in England. So doing your first theatre gig with Stephen Daldry is, you know, it's, it's pretty awesome. It was a play about refugees. It was a play about what happened in Calais with the camp. So as a French person and also as an Arab and a Muslim, it was just great to be in a play like this. Hmm. Just talking about the content of it. The whole process of rehearsing was just amazing. Like Justin Martin, which was the other director, because I'm talking about Stephen Daldry, obviously, but there was two of them and they were both amazing. Justin Martin and Stephen Daldry, they were so creative and so generous and so open that the whole process of working on it was, it just, they made it so easy. They made it so easy. And the play was such a mindfuck to put together because basically... It was like everybody was in the cafe. So the actors were in the middle of the audience. We were shouting, we were eating while sitting next to the audience. But there was a choreography that had been crafted by those two directors and they made it look like it was all improvised. Mm. But yeah, what I would really keep from them is that those two guys were so generous, despite the fact that they were very successful. 
it, it's very funny. I just finished shooting a film with Judd Apatow. Hmm. I very often find that, I mean, maybe I've only been lucky and maybe I'm going to work one day with a big director who'll be a massive asshole. But so far, usually people who are very, very successful, they just happen to be so easygoing mm. because they have one quality. They're relaxed. They're so confident that they don't need to put any pressure on you because mm. they know what they're going to do. They know they share. And if there's a problem in terms of sorting out a scene, figuring out what a scene is about, they're going to take on that responsibility rather than put that on your shoulder and say, why are you not making this scene work? Right. And they make you feel so confident because you just trust them and you just go with whatever they ask you to do. And that's why it was an amazing experience. Wow. So the past year has been a difficult one and an odd one for all sorts of reasons. You've mentioned that you've just finished shooting with Judd Apatow. How have you been spending the year and how has it been for you professionally? I mean, 2020 has been difficult for everybody. So there's no point saying the year was a bit of a pain because it was for everybody. First of all, I'm grateful that my family was healthy. And I think the first few months I was focusing on that. Then after a few months, you start going crazy about work. Yeah. Yeah. I finished shooting a series in France just before lockdown. I literally finished a week before. So that was good. Then for the two months, in a way, it felt, this is awful to say that, but it felt great. I didn't have to think or worry at all about the industry for two months because it simply wasn't happening. Mm. Yeah. So yes, it happened because of a bad thing. But I was talking because my girlfriend's an actor as well. And we were just like reflecting on the fact that it allowed us to really enjoy life without constantly having this little voice telling you, maybe you're missing out on something. Maybe something is happening and you don't know about it. Yeah. Then after that, I did another a limited series in September in France. And then from January of this year, I started working again. So compared to other people I know, I would say that I've been fortunate. I haven't worked as much as I would normally work if the pandemic hadn't happened. But things are fine. And in terms of my plans for the future, I mean, the life of an actor is so uncertain anyway that I don't know if it really changed my plans, you know, there were less opportunities and less money coming. But at the same time, I could have just had a bad year with or without pandemic. Mm. Mm, right. You know, I write a lot. So it allows me to have a shift of focus constantly because I write almost on a daily basis. So, yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned that you were shooting several limited series in France. Yeah. So actually, could you tell us more about that? So you have moved back to France now, haven't you? No, no, no. I mean, I'm still based in London. I just spend more time in Paris at the moment because my co-writers and I are in the process of, uh, I mean, we're trying to secure a deal for a show we've written. So it just forces me to be more here whenever I'm not acting, but I'm still based in London. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. How have you found working in the two industries, France and UK? Well, and the US now as well. Yeah, it's amazing. The few of them are different. So basically, I would say the American, they're very business driven. They tell you this is what it is. This is how it's going to happen. If you sign with us, we basically own you. And <laughs> you can't say much about it. But we'll pay you more than you'll be paid in England or France. And everything will be amazing. And they're very business-like, which I like in a way because you know what's going to happen. Right. right. And that's very straightforward. Mm -mm. What I like with the Brits is the work ethic. I'm not saying the French or the American don't have a work ethic. I'm just saying... With the Brits, it's impeccable. Mm. And that's what I've learned from drama school. That's what I've noticed on sets. They really have their shit together. Right. 
In France, it's an absolute mess, <laughs> which I love. <laughs> so I know it sounds weird that I'm saying that I'm loving the work ethic in England and the mess in France, but it's the case. I love them both for different reasons. Yeah. I love that in France, I don't have to be careful about what I'm saying because it's not going to get lost in translation. I love the people look like they don't give a fuck, even if they sort of care about what they're doing, but they don't really. Everything's super messy. But somehow it works. But somehow it works yeah. because they don't really see it as an industry in a way. Mm. Oh. I mean, they do, but it doesn't feel like it. It feels more like family, you know, like a family business when you get on the set. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Compared to the Anglo-Saxons. But sometimes... I would say that, you know, when I'm in France, what I'm lacking is the we have a shit together thing that, you know, I get with the English. Yeah. So I'm so grateful and I feel so fortunate to be able to work in those different industries because I love them all for very different reasons. And it's nice sometimes to, you know, finish something in England, start getting a little bit pissed off with the over-organized system and then get to France where everything is way more messy And then when I start getting a bit upset with too much mess (laughs) to jump to another English project again and get a bit more, you know, structure. So I love that. I love that I can juggle with those different energies. Yeah. It's like the best of all the worlds. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, 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 definitely. (laughs) Well, focusing in on the UK industry, many of our guests have spoken about feeling the impact of the hostile environment policies that are still very often felt and reflected in fewer opportunities and less support to be taken less seriously due to backgrounds or accents. And so those are all things you've mentioned, but I wonder, is this something you've experienced as well in the UK? Well, there's two things. First of all, the accent is always going to be limiting, you know, like in a country, people are not necessarily going to write stuff thinking of people with accents. Sure, yeah. So, you know, it's just factual. Whether casting directors or producers want it or not, it's a factual thing. They have a script and they have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's an accent thing. And I don't think that people make the conscious decision not to hire you because you have an accent. I think it's just a question of what is the material available. Right. Having said that, it's never going to be easy to have the same opportunities in a country if it's not your first language. And it's not a UK thing. It's not an American thing. It happens in France. I know that for a fact. And I'm pretty sure it happens in Germany or other countries. So does it limit the opportunities? I think it does. Does that mean that there's less support? If I talk about my own experience, I've never felt that casting directors weren't supportive. Hmm. And I'm not saying that just because I hope that they're going to hear that and they're going to give me additions. Like, honestly... I've been very, very lucky since I left drama school and I didn't ever remember my agent telling me that he was struggling to get me in the room because I had an accent. Right. Yeah, yeah. Now, to move on to more general questions. Well, the word migrant really is a massive blanket term which covers a huge range of vastly different experiences and situations. But that being said, from your travels and experience, do you feel there is such a thing as a shared migrant experience or even sense of identity yeah i mean there definitely is you know what i was saying a bit earlier that when you start learning a language you sort of lose who you are you lose your personality you can't make jokes so sometimes you have a joke that's coming to your mind but it's already too late because 
the crowd has moved on from the conversation 30 seconds ago and you're like, oh shit, yeah. uh, you know, and when you talk to other foreigners about it, you get a sense that they've been experiencing the same stuff. Mm-hmm. I always make sure when I meet people now, I mean, to be fair, Mama May is a foreigner in the country she lives in, even though, you know, when she was born, Algeria was French. So she learned the language very early on. So it was easier. But I'm still the son of a person who is an alien to some extent, even though, you know, she loves France and she integrated here. Mm -hmm. So it's not like I was like somebody who was 100% French and was going to another country without having any sense of what it is to be a foreigner. Right. So it's always been sort of like maybe it was already part of my DNA in a way. Mm -hmm. Also, when you're in France and you're half Arab, well, you're being reminded that you're an Arab by people, not by everybody, but it's, you know. So it is part of you. And when you talk to other people, my girlfriend's Romanian. She lived in England since she was 18. She spends time in Paris with me. She speaks Romanian, English and French. And, you know, so it's a funny thing because in a way I've chosen, I don't think it's a conscious choice, but I've chosen to be with somebody who's not French. I've chosen to be with somebody who's not Algerian. And this this experience of speaking multiple languages together, I mean, two languages together, English and French. And when we met, we could tell that we had similar experiences in going to the UK and Mm -hmm. dealing with the language, even if her English is much, much better than mine. Because Romanian people are just better at English because they don't dub their films, you know. Mm. That's what fucks us up in France. (laughs) One of our films are dubbed. So by the time we realize that English is important, it's too late. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, there is a shared experience. But also, the migrant experience is a funny one because there's a migrant experience and there's the migrant experience. When you're an artist who's living in France to go to London, as much as you think that you've been struggling to deal with this thing, with money or paying your rent or stuff, there's another migrant experience, which is a completely different one. As like, you know, I see Algerian people coming to France having literally nothing, not speaking mm. the language, yeah. coming from a country that is culturally so different, not having the facility of a European passport, which has changed now because of Brexit. But at the time... I just had to book my Eurostar ticket and go to London. And then it was easy. Yeah. So, you know, it's always a tricky thing because there's a shared migrant experience as long as it's within a very specific context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you go to Calais and ask a migrant if he has a shared experience with an actor who all of a sudden <laughs> is talking about how difficult it is to make it as an actor with his accents and how difficult it is to get in the auditioning room for this amazing TV series for Netflix the guy's going to be like, have you lost your mind? <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. I've, I've, I've run away from my country because I couldn't eat. And, you know, I had to jump on a fucking boat and go through the Mediterranean Sea and then go again and then go again before I arrived in a country where people told me that I couldn't stay. Yeah. What are you going to tell these people? Are we sharing, you know, a common experience because we're both migrants? Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I totally agree with everything you said, for sure. And when you hear the word home, what comes to mind for you? Paris. Paris. Always, forever. <laughs> I'm a proper Parisian. Like, regardless of my faith, regardless of the color of my skin. You know, it's a funny thing. In France, people would describe me as they would say, oh, he's an Arab. In Algeria, when I go there, I'm just the son of an immigrant. So for them, I'm like, yeah, you're Algerian. Yeah, that's fine. You have your passport. But at the end of the day... You have all of the luxury of having grown up in France. So you're French, you know? Right. And I really got a sense of being French and being a Parisian when I went to London the first time. Because when you go there and people call you Frenchy, regardless of the color of your skin, because of how you sound, because of how you carry yourself, 
there's something that is so by essence so French and yeah. in my case so Parisian and then I was like yeah this is what I am I just have to go to a country that it's not mine to really understand how people are going to see me mm-hmm. you see what I mean yeah yeah well in spite of that has your time studying in the UK and living in the UK had an impact on you do you feel you've become more British or I don't think I've become more British. <laughs> I think I've learned how to complain a little bit less because I could see that I was driving everybody crazy about it. Right. <laughs> yeah, French people love to complain. It's a guilty pleasure. Yeah. yeah. Also, I was really struggling at the beginning when I arrived in the UK. It's going to sound really weird. I hope I'm not going to sound like a sociopath, but I was struggling with people being so enthusiastic and so happy all the time. And I was like, <laughs> this is too much. Like, I remember the first week I go to Lambda and I have a cup of tea in my hands. And one of my classmates is like, what are you drinking? And I said, I'm drinking tea. And she says, oh, awesome. And I'm like, what the fuck is awesome in drinking tea? <laughs> you know, like if it had been in Paris, I could have been eating gold. If I told somebody like, I'm eating something that is the most beautiful thing on earth, it would have come up with something like, I don't care, <laughs> you know, but like a cup of tea was enough to make somebody feel like it was awesome. Yeah. And I, I promise you after three months, it was overwhelming. I was like, I can't deal with this excess of yeah. enthusiasm for literally nothing. You make the British sound American. <laughs> really? The British or yeah. American to the French and to the yeah, Parisians in particular. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so I think I've learned from them being a little more enthusiastic about things, complaining mm-hmm. a little bit less, even though I still have a lot of work to do on that side. But yeah, I wouldn't say I've become English. And again, work ethic, as I've mentioned earlier. Mm. The Brits are really good at taking things seriously. They take the crafts very seriously. There's no bullshit about, oh, we're a bunch of artists mm-hmm. and we cursed and it's amazing to be sad <laughs> because we're writing poems. And you don't see that in England. <laughs> yeah. you, don't, you know, you don't yeah. get straight to the point. They get to work, they get things done. And yeah. that's something I really enjoy. And what would you say is your least British trait then? Well, I'm the still complaining, complaining, I guess. Yeah, complaining. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still a complaining motherfucker, big time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and finally, last question. What hopes do you have for the future on a professional and personal level? A personal level, I'm thinking more and more about, you know, I don't have children. I'm thinking more and more about having a family. That's something that really is on my mind at the moment. Mm. So that's something that would be very welcome in my life. Yeah. On a professional level, an actor is always going to tell you that he's not satisfied. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to know when you get enough. You have to work on it on a daily basis to say, okay, you know, be grateful for what you have and, you know, keep moving on, keep working hard, keep putting all the work. But obviously I would tell you that I want more. I want great scripts and, you know, I want to be able to tell inspiring stories and I wouldn't have mm. anything specific to tell you right now. I just, I think if anything, I'd just love to sell my show soon and you know obviously i want things to keep going well but i think i also want to be able to create my own stuff and make them happen and Mm. make them successful and my wish for the future is to be able to come up with projects that will be inspiring and that we are at the right place in the world Mm, i don't know if you want to tell us a little bit about your writing projects or if those are under wrap no not at all at the moment our agents because it's four of us developing our show and three of us are in the same agency 
and our agents are trying to secure a deal. It's a show about the colonization of Algeria. Mm. Two of us are Algerians, two other sorts, but you know, it's a project that was close to our hearts, all of us, and we've been developing it for two years and we're meeting people at the moment and it's going in the right direction. It's a show that obviously costs a bit of money. Mm. So it's taking time to fall into place, yeah. but we're working towards it. Well, we wish you all the best with thank your you. writing project. Likewise, thank you. And with your family as well. And yeah, so we look forward to seeing your projects that you filmed as well. So do you want to tell us quickly which shows we should look forward to with you in? There's the Jada Pito film called The Bubble, which will be on Netflix. I don't know when, probably the end of 2021. And I've got two limited series coming out in France this year on a channel called Arte. I just happened to work for the same network twice. Mm -hmm. One is called Algiers Confidential, and it's about a bunch of Algerian revolutionaries who are sort of like trying to make things change in their country. It's a modern piece. Mm -hmm. One is called Leo Zerb, and it's a nice little drama set in a village in countryside. It's sort of a crime drama. And I've just wrapped on The Great as well, the Hulu TV series. I had a front partner there, which was cool. There's a film called 355, coming out in theatres in January 2022. It was supposed to come out this year, but obviously because of COVID and everything is closed, they had to push it one year later. Mm -hmm. There's some great stuff to look forward to and uh, we'll see what happens. We look forward to it. Yeah, amazing. Amazing. Thank Thanks so, so much, Rafael. Thank, Thank you. you. You've been listening to Migratives, a podcast produced by Woven Voices. Migratives is created and hosted by Nadia Cavell, Zachary Fall and Ben Weaver-Hinks. Our music is by Guy Hughes and our artwork is designed by Lucy Stapleton-Smith. To support the podcast, you can rate, review and subscribe on the platform of your choice. And to find out more about our work, follow us on social media or check out our website, wovenvoices.org.